It's good to be here with you and your kiddos this morning for many of you, uh, and we will take that into consideration as we move quickly through our discussion this morning. They're a gift. They are a wiggly gift at times, and so we recognize that. We have four of our own. Uh, they are now 18, 16, 14, and 11. Less wiggly, uh, but still busy. Uh, uh, but it's good to be here with you. Uh, the ask, the charge, the intent of this morning is simply for us to have a conversation through the Word of God about what it looks like for us to live an alternative narrative in the world around us. One of my favorite writers, uh, the late uh, Tim Keller, uh, said it this way, that um, it is important for us to understand the narrative of the gospel and its implications in our lives and to increasingly understand that narrative of the gospel, and yet simultaneously and not separate from our increasing awareness and understanding of the cultural narrative around us and what it is also saying to us. And while we have the gospel narrative speaking one thing and the cultural narrative speaking another, at some point these two narratives come in conflict with one another and a decision has to be made about something's got to give. These two things cannot coexist equally in our lives uh, at the same level for much length of time at all. And so something's got to give. And so what would it look like for us to be the kind of people increasingly that are becoming the kind of people that uh, are making the decision uh, daily in which the narrative culture around us, uh, the cultural narrative around us uh, is the one that is uh, uh, being pressed down and the gospel narrative within us is increasingly growing, particularly as it relates to how we relate to the world around us. Uh, my wife and I and our girls live in College Station, and for many of you, uh, that uh, calls into question Drew's decision-making about why I would even be here this morning. Uh, yet, there is an Aggie uh, down here on the second row. He and I have connected. That's right. Uh, he's got his jersey on this morning. Uh, and I'm struck by the fact that uh, we live in a community where there are eight thousands and thousands and thousands of 18 to 21, 22-year-olds that for the most part, are largely being told a particular narrative, which is uh, to make as good of grades as you can, to get as good of a job as you can, to make as much money as you can, uh, to live in the best neighborhoods and drive the best cars that you can, have the best vacations and the best retirement that you can, and begin making decisions now uh, so that you can set up that kind of life in which you avoid anything that's hard or difficult that might compromise that. That is largely the cultural narrative in which we live that says, build as comfortable and convenient of a life as possible. And then as we encounter the scriptures and we increasingly become aware of the gospel narrative, we see something very different in the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus. And then in particular, those who follow the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus, that it is not so much building up of a life that avoids anything that's difficult or hard or uncomfortable, uh, but it's both um, engaging those hard places as we come across them. But then even more than that, it's intentionally seeking out some places that are hard and difficult and broken and are in need of redemption. And this is where we see primarily the gospel narrative and the cultural narrative around us conflict with one another and something's got to give. 
I don't know what your life is like. A lot of our life is functional in nature. A lot of uh, conversation around what and how. Uh, what are we going to do today? How are we going to do it? Who has what tonight? And uh, what's the carpool situation? Uh, you know, we now have two drivers in our home, but for years, and still to a certain extent, uh, the evening hours are spent Ubering kids around to live their best life, uh, you know, and we're unpaid Uber drivers for that. Actually, we pay to do that, as a matter of fact, right? Uh, And a lot of it is who's got what and how, and what's for dinner, and what's this. So much functional language that it's important for us to sometimes, just in life in general, and especially in our walk with the Lord, uh, get back to why. What's the why behind all the what and the how? Why do we go to church? Uh, Why do we get up? Uh, Why do we do the things that we do and how we do those things? And just coming back to the core of why, you heard it read a moment ago, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, and we will just simply kind of flow through that here in our time. Uh, And it's this beautiful articulation of the narrative of the gospel that brings us back to why. It very clearly communicates to us who God is, what God has done, the implications on our life, and then it uh, provides this framework in which we begin to increasingly move towards uh, seeing that gospel narrative play itself out more fully in our lives. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 starts out this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is one actually of my favorite Christmas verses that we never hear preached at Christmas. There's no magi, there's no angels, there's no shepherds, uh, but it still very much encapsulates the essence of Christmas, Galatians chapter four, verse four. It says, when the fullness of time had come, that means at just the right time, not by accident, not by chance. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. We now, in hindsight, understand uh, that to be Mary. Physically born, Jesus is born through the person of Mary. Born under the law, we understand that phrase to mean under the weight of condemnation. Ultimately born to be crushed. We don't talk about that aspect very much at Christmas. That's not a very happy Christmas Eve service to attend, right? We typically reserve that for Easter and actually really just for Good Friday uh, on Easter weekend. That Jesus was born to be crushed. But it's true all of the time. That Jesus came into this world to lay his life down, to give his life as a ransom. And so if you were in a seminary class, the professor might say this is what we call the doctrine of incarnation. This idea that God would step out of his glory, wrap himself up in our humanity, take on our flesh, live among us, uh, die for us so that we could ultimately begin to experience uh, freedom and redemption. This idea of incarnation makes sense to most of us since especially we're in Texas and the Houston area. We have the privilege of knowing what Tex-Mex restaurants are. I get to travel around the country uh, and uh, they pretend like they have Tex-Mex restaurants, but they don't, right? Uh, I'll be in Seattle and they'll say, we wanted to make you feel like you were at home, so we're going to, uh, to a Mexican restaurant tonight. And I will uh, in, silently in my head say, please don't make us go to Pacific Northwest Mexican food, right? Uh, you don't understand. So uh, we actually had Papacitos last night because uh, there is none in College Station. So when in the big city, enjoy the things of the big city, right? And so at Tex-Mex restaurants, you can order things con carne. You can order queso con carne. You can order chili con carne. And we all know that that means with beef or with meats. This is a very crude illustration that I'm sure my seminary professors don't appreciate me using at times, but it's the same root word as the word incarnation, 
concarne, incarne. It's this idea that it is God with beef on, God with meat on, okay? So today, after church, you can go to your favorite Tex-Mex, order queso con carne, and talk about the incarnation of Jesus and have a little celebration there uh, in a way that you never would have before. That's a gift to you. You're welcome. (laughs) Something you never thought you wanted, but now you're glad you have, right? This is the idea that God with meat on, and here's what we really understand at Christmas, and of course, is true all of the time, which, by the way, Christmas is next month. Isn't that wild, right? Actually, I walked into Lowe's probably late September, and both Halloween decorations and Christmas trees, right? I feel like it's getting earlier and earlier. People in our neighborhood are putting up lights earlier and earlier. We just can't wait to get to it, right? This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God would step out of his glory, wrap himself up in our humanity, wrap himself up in our brokenness, literally, be broken by our brokenness so that we could begin to experience healing and transformation and redemption. This is the essence of Christmas. At just the right time, this is what God did for us through Jesus. It's as if God is saying in the incarnation, I see you where you are and I'm moving towards you. I'm coming after you. God doesn't remain at a distance. God doesn't say, I see you where you are from this high place and if you will just work your way to where I am, then you can enjoy my fellowship. No, he says, I see you where you are, and I'm intentionally moving towards you, and I'm going to wrap myself up in your brokenness and be broken by it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says uh, that his name will be Emmanuel. We all know that to mean that God is now with us. God's not at a distance. He's not out there, over there. He's right here with us. And this was such a shocking um, aspect of the nature of God's redemptive pursuit of people that uh, many uh, prior to that just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that God would enter into the brokenness of our humanity, that God can't stand the presence of sin. And I've heard that often throughout my life as a kid growing up in the church, that God can't stand the presence of sin. And I've actually found that to be not only inaccurate, but backwards. I actually find that God very much can stand the presence of sin. I think he's doing it just fine now. It's actually that sin can't stand the presence of God, right? And so God steps into and moves towards and gets involved with, uh, and he dwells among us. John chapter one, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase literally means tabernacle. They're built a home among us. If you've ever built a home or moved into a new neighborhood or walked into your favorite grocery store and they've recently uh, moved things around, it's a, this, it's a reorientation, right? There's now, I have, to, I have to relearn, I have to learn a new way, okay? I have to learn the new roads and the new traffic and the new tricks of how to get around. And I've got to learn where all of the stuff is in the store now because they moved it all. It's this reorientation and that's this idea that we see in John chapter one, when it says the word Jesus became flesh and built a home among us, uh, he reoriented his redemptive pursuit. He says, I am here now and everything now revolves around this in a new way. One of my favorite writers, Henry Nouwen says, compassion's not a bending toward the underprivileged from a privileged position. It's not a reaching out from on high to those who are less fortunate. It's not a gesture of sympathy or pity for those who fail to make it in the upward pool. You get the sense in which he's saying, compassion is not just feeling bad for people. On the contrary, compassion means going directly to those people and places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. Compassion means going directly to those 
people and places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. Tabernacling there, reorienting your life around that. This becomes the new reference point for all of life. I can no longer pretend like this doesn't exist. I can no longer continue on building a life that pretends like these hard places around me don't exist. I now have a new narrative, and it's one that's intentionally pursued, not accidentally come upon. It's seeking out those places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. That we would increasingly become the kind of people that build a home there. God sees hard places and broken people. He moves towards them and not away from them. This is the consistent MO of God throughout all of Scripture. You'd be hard-pressed to read through the Scriptures and not come across on every page, if not every other page, uh, another example of God moving towards places that are hard and broken and need of redemption and, and in need of redemption. And so Paul then continues. He says, this is what God has done for us through Jesus. And now here's the implications. In verse five, he says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is past tense language. In essence, Paul is saying that our past has now been redeemed. To redeem those who were under the law. Remember that phrase, under the law, under the weight of condemnation. Paul now juxtaposes verse four and verse five and says Jesus was born under the weight of condemnation to free those of us who were under that weight of condemnation out from underneath it. He took our place and we've been set free from that. Our past has now been redeemed. It doesn't say that our past has been forgotten. Have you ever wondered why when Jesus steps into our story and saves us, he doesn't say let's just pretend like none of that ever happened and move on or doesn't wipe away all memory. As a matter of fact, we understand more and more now through science that the body keeps the score and carries the weight of trauma with us in ways that we don't even fully understand. And it would be so much nicer if we just pretended like that never happened and it was erased and we moved on. But scripture never says that uh, Jesus steps into our story and our past has been forgotten. It says our past has been redeemed. I think what that means on one level, is that we now have the capacity to have a new relationship with our past. We may have a dysfunctional relationship with our past, things we've done or things that have been done to us that drag us down and condemn us. And then Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free. Our past is no longer a source of condemnation, but it's now a platform of celebration. It's been redeemed. We can look back on our past and say, Look what Jesus has done. It's a, it's a platform of celebration. And so when Jesus steps into our story, our past is redeemed. We have a new relationship with our past. He continues in verse six. Because you are now sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is present tense language. So Paul has said our past is redeemed. And now he is effectively saying our present has been shifted. It's been changed. Something's different now about our present. You are now sons. How do we know that? Because God has sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us, and it's given us the ability to refer to God and relate to God in new ways. We can cry out to him as Abba, Father. That's a bit of a play on words. It's almost the same word, but they have slightly different connotations. So the word father we're all familiar with. There's this authority. I am, I am my daughter's father. But they don't walk into our home uh, and say, hi, father, how was your day, right? 
They actually don't even acknowledge me much when they walk into our home anymore, right? They used to run to me when they were young and cute, and we have fun videos, and uh, now just nothing, right? Uh, the dog, though, he does. He does. Uh, but they don't call me father, but they know that I'm their father. And I'm less concerned that they know that I'm their father, and I'm more concerned that they know that I am kind of the other connotation of this word that we see in Scripture, which has a more intimate connotation to it, a more approachable a more affectionate connotation to it, okay? This is the idea of Abba, that he's both father in terms of authority, but he's also Abba in terms of affection and safety and security. So this is now our new present reality through the presence of the Holy Spirit is that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, Scripture says. We can approach the throne of God knowing exactly how he feels about us and what he feels towards us. He feels towards us what a Abba feels towards his children, affection and closeness and safety and security. We can bring anything to him, knowing exactly how he'll respond to us, not in shock or um, uh, surprise or disgust, but with affection. I heard it said recently that many of us might um, theologically believe that God does love us, but functionally struggle with whether or not he actually likes us. Is he really, right now, is he just frustrated with me? Is he disappointed in me? Is he, um, uh, is he just wishing that I would do better? And he looks at me and thinks, gosh, you should know better by now. And what Paul is saying in verse six is that through this presence of the spirit, we don't have to wonder those things. We can come to him with the security and a safety, knowing that right now we're fully loved and taken care of and cared for. And then verse seven, he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is now future tense language. We've seen him say that our past has been redeemed, that our present has been shifted and secured. And now he says something about our future. So you are a son, and by nature being a son, you are an heir through God. God. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. In other words, an heir is someone who lives today uh, with a full confidence in the future. Not a fear of the future, not a wondering of how this is going to play out, but a confidence in the future. It's generally speaking, when we read about our future in the New Testament, we see a couple of things. We see that first it says that uh, glory is coming. That while our outward bodies waste away, our inward souls groan for the glory that will be revealed. And the older you get, the more relatable that verse becomes. While our outward bodies waste away. I get that. Makes sense, right? And my inward soul groans for the glory of redemption that will be revealed. Over and over again, we see this reference to a future glory. That while we taste it now, we'll see it in full in the future. But there's a second promise in scripture that runs parallel to that. The first is that glory is coming, and the second one is, that, is this, is that the path to that glory will be difficult and will be increasingly difficult. But glory is coming. That in the end, Jesus wins over it all. You know, we live in a current uh, social and political, cultural environment that I don't think surprises God at all. As a matter of fact, I think he said, I told you this was coming. It will be increasingly difficult to live for the things of me and the world around you. But have no fear, I win in the end. Glory's coming. It's not a competition. It's just a matter of an assurance of today. We know that victory is coming. 
We don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. We don't know what will be in our news tomorrow. We don't know what will happen in the world next week. But we do know that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of what's to come because we are now heirs through God. And so this is our new story. Our past has been redeemed so we can have a new relationship with our past. Our present has been shifted so we never have to wonder what God thinks or feels towards us. We have a present security and our future has been altered. We don't have to be afraid of what's to come. And this becomes the framework through which we increasingly become deep celebrators of the gospel as we become more aware of the narrative of the gospel in us and for us. And then we also become increasingly wide demonstrators of that gospel that we would seek out those places where suffering is most acute. And we would walk alongside people and in effect say to them, you can have a new relationship with the hard things of your past. You can live today with a security and knowing that you're fully loved and cared for. And together we can begin to walk into a future uh, that is less full of fear and more full of hope. You don't have to be afraid anymore. It doesn't mean that we solve all the problems or that we fix things quickly, but it does mean that we become the kind of people that seek out those places where suffering is most acute. And we build a home there. It becomes a new reference point for all of life. And what we find is that this doubles back on us. As we increasingly become aware of the narrative of the gospel within us and demonstrate that uh, into the lives of those around us, it actually bounces back on us and we are over and over again reminded of the power of the gospel to transform and to redeem, as we walk alongside people who need to know that their past can now become a platform of celebration, their present can be secure in knowing that you're fully loved and cared for, and your future can be full of hope. Not without hard things. This is still a difficult path. But at a minimum, you no longer walk this path alone. You walk this path with people who believe in the transformative power of the work of Jesus. And so that's who we increasingly Want to become. Now, I'll close with this that the implications of this gospel are, are clear for all of us, that we would all increasingly become the kind of people that live this out into the world around us. But the applications, the ways in which we do that, are full of diversity. We like to say it this way that we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all created to do something, that everyone can do something. Scripture says that we are like ears and eyes and hands and feet and toes. Some of us are bigger, some smaller, some more visible, some more hidden, but none of us are non-essential. All of us are important to the proper functioning of the people of God, the body of Christ. Several years ago, I was at a large foster parent appreciation dinner in Kansas City, and if you've ever been to Kansas City, they talk about two things, and that's it, two things only, barbecue and Patrick Mahomes, that's it, which are both really Texas things. Frank Patrick, he's an East Texas boy, is, from what I understand. And we were at a large foster parent appreciation dinner catered by a barbecue restaurant. Uh, Knowingly, from from me, the owner of the restaurant was there that night. He came up to me afterwards, and he he introduced himself as the owner of the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City, a bold claim. And he made it very clear that he is in no position to bring a child into his home through foster care, uh, which was fine with me because he was just frankly a terrifying man. And please don't bring kids into your home. You're a terrifying man. I'm afraid even standing this close to you, right? But he was also very adamant about the fact that he owns the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City, and he has told organizations and ministries and churches around the city, anytime that there's a function like this, call us, and we will be sure to deliver the best barbecue in Kansas City for free. 
So here's a guy who very clearly understood I'm, this isn't what his something was not, but he also very clearly understood what his something was. And he said, I know what I can't do, I know what I can do, and what I can do, I'm going to do extremely, I'm going to do really, really well. Better than everyone. He made it very clear. Best. It's like, I get it, right? You're very proud. It's great. This is what it means to be part of the creative diversity of the people of God, that we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. And sometimes it just means that we need a little bit of space to think creatively. What is my something? What unique gifts, passions, expertise, degrees, occupations, experiences, situations has God given me that I might be able to bring to the table for the good of the whole? Romans chapter 12 says, as in one body we have many members, the members don't all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ. We are individually members of one another. That's a pretty profound statement that we are more connected and interconnected than we could probably even physically understand. We are more interdependent upon one another, but we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so let us use them. Everyone can do something. And so our invitation to you today, this morning first, is uh, to understand and embrace the, the narrative of the gospel for you, the work of Jesus on our behalf that he would be the kind of God that moves towards us, enters into our story, and begins to effectively change past, present, and future as he walks with us, Emmanuel. This is first and foremost what we are invited to respond to. And then secondarily to that, for us in light of that gospel, to consider what might be my something as we increasingly live that gospel out and demonstrate that gospel in seeking out those places where suffering is most acute and we become the kind of people that build a home there. Amen? Let me pray. So Father, I do pray that your spirit would first and foremost remind us of what's true in the work of Jesus on our behalf and would invite those who may have never encountered this truth to respond accordingly. And then second, that you would give us clarity for what our something might be as we seek out those places and we build a home there. And for many of us, it might not be clarity that we need. It might be clear already. And what we might need is courage. And so I pray for courage for many who know what their something might be, for them to have the courage by your spirit to move and act on it in obedience to what you're calling them to do. So Father, I pray that you would Help us respond appropriately to the truth of your gospel. Give us clarity for how we might demonstrate that more widely and the courage that we need by your spirit to do it. It's in your name that we pray, amen.